0: You and I have talked about this before, but you've got some high-profile customers. You yeah. got like a lot of athletes and stuff that come through. So yep. talk about what it's like serving, you know, a high-profile person or an athlete or you know. I don't hype it up too much. I know that about yeah. you. Yeah.
1: So uh, I, I think I've been starstruck maybe once in my career. So who are you most starstruck by? Adam right? Sandler.
0: <laughs> so he bought something from you. I
1: sold Adam Sandler, uh, John W. Norsham underwear. <laughs> so, uh, and that might be the highlight of my is that, career. Oh yeah. Is that right? Oh yeah. It was the best best interaction of my life.
0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom, and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. Before we get started, I want to take a second to make sure you all know that you can actually be part of the show. Yes, a large part of what we do here is trying to talk about Nordstrom from the inside out, give you a glimpse of how things work, but we also want to use the Pod to learn more about Nordstrom through the customer's eyes. We want to hear more about your experience with Nordstrom. Have we made you a lifelong customer? Or have you sworn to never step foot in one of our stores ever again? Or maybe it be this idea that we've talked about is what is your first big purchase from Nordstrom? You know that time when you were like a teenager or a young adult and you made a big stretch for something that was a high-stakes occasion and you bought it from us? We'd love to hear that story too. So grab a pen. Do people still use pens? I don't know. Grab whatever is going to help you remember this number. Here is the number. 206-594-0526. Give us a call and leave a voicemail. Or send us an email to NordyPodcast at Nordstrom.com. And you may end up on a future episode of the NordyPod. Okay, let's get on with the show. This episode was particularly fun for me because I got to sit down with a few good friends, talk about music, and one of them even brought cookies. Robin Wheel Martin of the famous Seattle-based Hello Robin Cookies, and you really should look this up because it's awesome. Check them out next time you're in Seattle. She stopped in to share a few stories about her teenage boys and their affinity for Nordstrom.
2: When my boys came home, they were delighted. And I think that when George walked into the door, he said, this is the best day ever. You're never going to believe what happened. And I was just like... Again, again with Nordstrom.
0: Then I followed up with one of our top stylists, Keaton Tidingfong, to get his take on dealing with Robin's boys as customers in our store.
1: Sometimes it doesn't feel like, you know, I'm going to change the world selling clothing. But at the same time, you can make some really cool connections and impact people in a very special, very different way.
0: But before we get to all of that, I want to introduce you to a really good friend, a super cool person, a community leader, the CEO of Sub Pop Records, and the author of The Lexicon of Grunge, Megan Jasper. <music> Megan grew up dreading her assumed future of becoming either a stay at home mom, a school teacher, or a nun which didn't exactly fit in with her free-spirited, adolescent punk rock lifestyle. By age 14, she was already on the radio pumping out anti-authoritarian tunes, donning a shaved head, and a wardrobe that made her teachers concerned for their safety. It wasn't long before Megan started hitching rides with touring bands, doing whatever odd job they had available. But no matter how deeply she embedded herself into the music scene, she always felt a haunting inevitability to settle for a normal job. Megan's story is inspiring, chaotic, and filled with some of the greatest artists on the planet. But more than that, it gives hope to all the misunderstood oddballs out there waiting for their dreams to be validated. This is not your typical CEO journey. I think you're really going to love meeting Megan and hearing her story. So let's get into it. All right. Megan, thank you so much for being on the podcast and talking with me today.
3: I'm psyched to be here, and I'm so glad you asked me. So thank you.
0: You're welcome. <laughs> so you may be wondering if you're listening to this, like, well, what is Pete Nordstrom talking to the CEO of Sub Pop? What's that all about? And... You know, this podcast is not just about our industry necessarily or this business and my family and stuff. It's also about things I'm interested in, people I know and people I admire and I respect. And I think one of the things I really admire about you, Megan, is first of all, you're in to me what seems like a cool industry. I mean I I'm you know, lucky. we're selling shoes and stuff like that, and you're <laughs> making records and that all sounds really exciting to me as a guy that's a music fan and a musician. But I kinda of wanna start with Grungerware. <laughs> with Grungerware. <laughs> what I where I kind of want to start is to get some idea about, well, okay, you're the CEO of Sub Pop Records. Like, what does that mean to a person listening out there like, okay, I I guess that's a record label. What does that mean?
3: So the awesome thing about having my job is that every day is totally different. And it is different than probably a lot of other CEOs. A lot of my days, honestly, are spent listening to music or even like proofing something like I get test pressings. Also, I probably spend more time just doing like people management stuff than a lot of other CEOs because it's sub pop. So many of us have worked together for so many years I mean, we have a lot of employees who have been there for 20 years.
0: And how old is the company?
3: The company is 33.
0: So a lot of that speaks to the culture that you guys have there. Yeah. And so I'm curious to get your take on culture and how that's important at Sub Pop.
3: I would say it's crucial at Sub Pop because we have to set ourselves apart from other labels that bands could work with. And I do think one of the things that we are able to offer is the fact that You know, we're this weird family that we've all known each other for a 100 years. Well, I mean, like 20, (laughs) 20 or 30 years, but we know each other really well. There's not a lot of turnover. So artists can actually... Is that
0: unusual in your industry? It's
3: super unusual with major labels and it's less normal with independent labels, but there are very few labels that have the same core group like Sub Pop. I mean, really, I don't know any. And so a band can go a few years without releasing a record and then come back in. And it's the same cast of characters. You know, it's like they can come in running. They know everyone. They know who we are, how we work. So it's like family for them, too.
0: Is there any knock-on effect to that? I mean, part of what you guys do, a big part of it, is about capturing the zeitgeist of a moment, which, you know, gets articulated through music. Yeah. So do you feel like you guys are still then able to make good assessments about relevant music for young people? Because I I don't know, maybe talk a little about your your target audience, or maybe you don't think about as young people, but I still think about this label is trying to do something that feels of the moment.
3: Yeah. So most of the bands that we're talking about signing are young. Every once in a blue moon, it's An artist that's established and has been around for a long time, like Doug Marsh from Built Spill. Not to say like Doug's old, <laughs> but I mean, we have folks in their forties, we have folks in their fifties, we have mud honey, you know, they've been around for a long time, and they're still making great music the a and r group at sub pop
0: so A&R, just so people understand what a n r is. I'm
3: so glad you asked because <laughs> yeah, we rattled that inside off baseball here, so a and r is artist and repertoire, and what an a and r person does is they seek talent. A lot of labels have one A&R person, a lot of independents. Sub Pop has a large group of A&R people, but we... So is that
0: kind of like the lifeblood of what you do is yeah. keeping up with new things and yeah, discovering have, new music? We're
3: constantly... we. There are threads that go around sharing is caring, and it's all like stuff people are listening to, new artists that are intriguing, or we've heard about from other artists... But we're constantly being fed music. Then the group determines which of these bands are real prospects, meaning potentially great partners for us. And then we go down the process of what's more like a courtship, like get to know each other, get to understand what their goals are, what they're working on, what they're looking for in a label partner. And then are they an asshole? You know, hopefully not.
0: So, I mean, obviously you're trying to sell music. Yeah. You know, I can only imagine on your thing when you've got this element of, yeah, you're trying to make money. It's a business, but it's also nurturing art and developing art. Does there get to be some awkward moments where it's like maybe the artist feels like this was an amazing record? I know everyone hated it, because, but they're stupid because our record is amazing. And you're like, Yeah. But you got to sell some more coffees or we can't keep going like this. I mean, have you had some of those really kind of awkward because it's hard to define success with art?
3: There have been some times when bands have brought something in and it's like it doesn't feel right. Or what has happened before is a band puts a demo together like they put some songs together. They're not mixed. They're not mastered. They're not anything. They're just you know, shitty recordings from a practice space.
0: Like on a cassette.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're fucking great. Like, they're so good. They're filled with spirit and energy. And then they go into a studio and you get a flat version of the song that's technically great, but lacking this special spirit or soul to the song. And it's like somehow it got overthought in the process. But the other thing that can be interesting in our industry is that sometimes success is getting yourself to a point where you're actually inspiring other artists. There are some artists that don't sell a ton of music, but they inspire so many other artists. And that's kind of a weird success to have, but it is a legitimate success.
0: I love that stuff. Yeah. All right. I want to go back to kind of your beginnings. And, you know, so here you are, this person that's had a lot of success. But like all of us, you started at some place as a kid, you know, having a life and trying to think about connecting your dreams with the practical realities of what you think you can do. So I'm I'm interested where you grew up, how you grew up and how it kind of brought you to this place.
3: So I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, and I grew up in an Irish Catholic family and we listened to music in my family. My dad listened to music. My mom always had the radio on. And I really loved it. Okay, and so I,
0: right there, what was your first record you ever bought?
3: It was a 7-inch by Helen Reddy. It was Delta Don.
0: <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Okay. It's
3: a good song.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, keep going.
3: And my parents did something that when I really look back at them as parents, there are so many things I'm grateful for. Two of them are, they always bought us books and they always bought us music. They would say, pick out a seven inch single and whatever one you want, we're going to get for you. And so we had a music collection as my sister and I did. As like a shared kids.
0: family music collection? Yeah. And
3: Mara and I, my sister, we're 15 months apart, liked all the same music, still like a lot of the same music. And we shared a record collection. So... Um, Our friend Judy had an older sister, Joanne. Joanne was listening to a lot of Clash, the jam, and we liked a lot of the music that Joanne was listening to. And we were super into the Beatles and shit like that. But, you know, you listen to the Buzzcocks and it's just all sped up pop songs. So we kind of transitioned into all of it really quickly. And when we were in high school, we got a radio show at the NPR station In Worcester, we did an overnight shift, and we played all punk rock music, 14 years old. How the
0: heck did you get on a radio station at 14 years old?
3: Joanne, Judy's sister, had a radio show on WICN and talked to the person in charge of music, and he thought... Oh, my God, yeah, we could get a bunch of 14-year-old punk rock girls. That might be a fun show. And (laughs) we, you know what's funny? I'm sure it was. It was a fun show, and it was awesome. And it totally kept us out of trouble and just kind of focused, gave us something to do and own that was
0: ours. In those times, punk rock was a real niche kind of thing. And what went with that was a whole kind of an aesthetic and a lifestyle. So were you like all bought into like the punk rock oh, lifestyle yeah. and how was that going over at home
3: not so well um, so <laughs> we looked like freak of nature kids i mean shaved heads or mohawks and um, so like
0: were there many kids at school looked like this or did you guys really stand out
3: no we stood out we got really good grades but there were some teachers who were freaked out by us we looked like scary, fucking weirdos, so <laughs> and, you know, my parents would say, like,, eh, maybe walk a little ways behind us in the supermarket,
0: okay. So you've embraced this music thing. you're going to high school, so what yeah. like, what were you thinking about that time? Like, because you're you're not a musician. You didn't come to this because you played an instrument or something. You pay because you're a fan,
3: yeah. I mean, I tried to play an instrument. I got a bass, but I was terrible at it it's not that I wanted to be a musician so badly. I just, I loved the music. I, I wanted to participate in the scene, like the punk rock scene. I wanted to contribute. I wanted to be a part of it. Whatever I could do to kind of give back to this thing that meant so much to me, which was music. I knew I was going to do that. But I thought I was going to do it until I became a school teacher, which is what I thought I was supposed to do.
0: What do you mean? What you thought you were supposed to do is well, this a collision course at all with like kind of your parents' expectations yeah, and the way you grew up and
3: yeah, because everyone in our family is a school teacher. Okay, like everybody except two nuns and two lawyers. <laughs> everyone else is a yeah, school you, teacher. The nun
0: wasn't part of your calling. That no, <laughs>
3: I, I thought you were a kid, a mom, a nun, and then a grandmother, and I was mortified. And I remember having a, a <laughs> breakdown one day, like, I don't want to be a nun. <laughs> and my mom's like, you don't have to be.
0: So you're you're going to school. You got this punk rock persona. Yeah. Then what? Like you go to college and...
3: I went to college and it didn't go away, but I, I really tried to study and do well. But, you know, at that point, it's like all your friends are musicians or music people. Some had radio shows. Tons of them were playing bands, you know, but Dinosaur Jr., Buffalo Tom, all of those dudes were where I went to school. And I ended up kind of just going on the road with Dinosaur Jr. and like selling shirts for them or changing guitar strings for Jay. And I would do that on the weekends and I would go to school during the day and study at night so that I didn't need my weekend for homework.
0: Obviously, there had to be a fork in the road at a certain point.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kept running away from being a school teacher. And so after college, I split and went to Germany. I went to Berlin. Maybe I was out there for like a month or so. And Jay called me from London. And their roadie had dropped off, fallen in love on the first show of their UK European tour. And he said, can you meet us in Amsterdam the next day? So I caught a train and went out there and I toured. We went everywhere for like six weeks and it was so much fun. UK, Europe, like former Yugoslavia, it was so much fun. So
0: okay, <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to think about your parents going, Okay, here's our lovely daughter and she's yeah. uh, she's a punk rock roadie. Yeah. And I thought she'd be a school teacher. How did that go over at home? Well,
3: they were psyched that I was traveling and seeing things, but they were worried about what I was gonna end up doing with myself. And so after I was in Berlin, I came home and then I jumped on a U.S. tour with them. And during that U.S. tour, I stopped in Seattle and I really fell in love with the city. So when the tour ended, I just grabbed all my shit and I moved to Seattle. I just flew out. And
0: not because you knew anybody here or you just thought you liked it here? I
3: liked it here. Yeah. And there was a cool music thing happening and... It kind of spoke to me in a way. It looked a little bit like Maine. I like that. So I figured I'll I'll give it a shot. I'll go out there for a couple of years, and then I'll go to graduate school. So this
0: is 1989? 89.
3: Yeah. And graduate school never happened. And two years came and went. And I got a job at Sub Pop as soon as I got here.
0: So that was your first job here was working at Sub Pop.
3: Well, my, really, my first job was painting a house in the international district and like doing demo work <laughs> on. Cause like, you were so a, well
0: qualified for that. I, I didn't know what I was doing,
3: <laughs> but um, this person, I don't even know how I found him, but he was desperate for help. And so Mark Pickerel, Chris D'Aquino, who then started up records. I knew Chris because Chris worked at SST records and that's where dinosaur released records on SST. And I knew Mark Pickerel because the Screaming Trees played shows with Dinosaur, and so I knew him. So the three of us would go, and we would just paint houses. And the guy was nuts, and he just paid us cash every day.
0: Okay, so then then you go to Sub Pop, and when you say <laughs> you went to work at Sub Pop at that time, what was Sub Pop actually?
3: So Sub Pop was a really tiny company on the top floor of the Terminal Sales Building. It was total chaos, but it was great Like, how many employees are we talking about here? Maybe they had four or five.
0: And how many records does Sub Pop have out at this point in the game? A small
3: handful.
0: Were they making any money? I mean, were you getting paid? I
3: I got paid five bucks an hour.
0: Was it a reliable paycheck? Did you always get paid?
3: No, my checks bounced all over the place.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you stuck with it.
3: Yeah, I loved it. It was amazing. I mean... Imagine being around the most creative, fun weirdos in the world, and they know everything about music. So you're constantly listening to music. There's total chaos. It's a flaming shit show.
0: So what exactly was your first job? So you're there. You guys probably had, everyone had to do a little bit of everything, I'd imagine. Yeah,
3: everyone was multitasking.
0: So tell me like a typical day when you're, you know, in 1990, there you are at Sub Pop Records.
3: I was always the first one there because I was the receptionist. I listened to all of the voicemail on the answering machine. I wrote all of the messages down, put them on everyone's desks. And then Jonathan would come in. It's a
0: Jonathan Pon- Poneman. Jonathan
3: Poneman. The founder who, of Sub Pop. Yeah, we would walk and get a cup of coffee, catch up, and then everyone would start streaming in. No one came in early. People were out at shows the night before. I had to get there early. It was really fun. And by lunchtime, the place was really kind of swinging, but the phones rang off the hook. Some of it was like people wanting money, some of it were bands wanting to get signed but it was constant.
0: It was noisy. When did you guys realize that something was happening there?
3: It felt like that when I had gotten there. I mean, it was so small still, but there was a really special kind of energy and there was something building in Seattle and in our larger music community that you really could feel. You know, we had bands like Mudhoney who were becoming really popular during that time. We didn't know what really popular meant. I mean, really popular meant like they could sell out a venue. I
0: mean this is pre internet, pre streaming. So how many records are you selling by these bands?
3: You know, I feel like we were doing like a couple thousand or a so few a thousand. So a successful release time.
0: was 2500 records maybe or something. 3000 yeah, records.
3: That was really good. And Mudhoney could do more than that.
0: And you could make money on that?
3: Well, no, because we <laughs> didn't budget anything and we didn't know what we were spending money on. So as money was coming in, we were just putting it wherever it needed to be spent. Whatever, if the phones were about to get shut down, that's where the money went. If a band needed to record, you know, a record and they had to pay for the studio today, that's where the money went. We so were learning was, as we were there going. There was,
0: wasn't really a defining moment like, this record came out, and this one day, all of a sudden, I'm getting a bunch of calls from Europe or something. There wasn't like this moment where something it wasn't happened. a moment
3: it was happening slowly, and it was building and we something we knew something special was happening, but it seemed like it was something special happening for mud honey and oh wow, it was something kind of special's happening for Nirvana, and there were good things that were happening that kept continuing. You don't know what it means when you're in the middle of it all. You just know that something's working, and still behind the scenes, some things weren't working. We didn't know if we'd be able to pay rent on the office space. We didn't know if we'd be able to get all the bills paid we usually couldn't. On one hand, these exciting things are happening externally. On the other hand, internally, it was super stressful, crazy, and chaotic, and really uncertain. But there's something about that kind of savage, creative energy and space that's exciting. And none of us wanted to step away from it, even on a really bad day.
0: What people should know is like, okay, when you mentioned Nirvana, just kind of as a one off. I mean, that was the big touchstone, because when you talk to anyone that's been paying any attention to music at that time, and I mean any attention, they know who Nirvana is. So this is a band from the remote Seattle area, a few hours away from Seattle, that end up making a record, and then they end up blowing up huge. And this all kind of happened right in front of you.
3: Yeah. Well, so the weird thing is, we would say that Sub Pop was the house that Mudhoney built. Because that was the flagship band. That was your
0: first successful band.
3: Yeah. And the Nirvana dudes would come in and they loved Mudhoney. Everyone loved Mudhoney. But even though Mudhoney was continuing to do better, all of a sudden Nirvana started writing new songs and playing those new songs. And their live shows were out of control amazing. But again, when you're in the middle of it, you don't really know what really special means. So they end up recording Nevermind. And when we got copies of that record, it was and undeniably this is 91? great. 91. But I feel like we first started hearing those songs even earlier than that. Like it was. Must so have when been did Bleach come out?
0: That Nirvana record that you guys put out?
3: That record came out in spring of 89, But when they eventually recorded that record and ended up signing to Geffen, which that was supposed to be a sub-pop record.
0: Geffen came swooping in and said, we're going to buy it for all this money. A
3: little bit. I think Nirvana wanted a situation that was more stable than what Sub Pop was able to provide.
0: And I, I can only imagine Nirvana was probably kind of ambitious in their own way. Yeah, they? they
3: wanted a shot, yeah. you know, like they knew the shows were going well. They knew they had good songs and they wanted a shot. And it wasn't the worst thing that they signed to Geffen. It ended up being a great thing. It was good for you, so, good for them. Yeah. And so Sub Pop did the deal with Geffen. Sub Pop ended up... Getting a point on the record. And ultimately, it was that that really ended up stabilizing Sub Pop financially. Well, not only
0: getting a point on that Nevermind record that was huge, but it got people curious about that record before that you guys own, that Bleach record, which ended up selling what? like Millions of copies? A
3: shitload. Like (laughs) we had pressed 40,000 when Nevermind came out. And then it just went crazy after that. It's It remains our best selling record.
0: Okay, so take me to 1992. Yeah, when a 25 year old Megan Jasper, who now was a former employee of Cipop, you were working with Caroline Records, right, a distributor. Yeah, gets a phone call from a reporter at the New York Times Style section. Yes. I will let you take it from there.
3: Okay, so Jonathan called me up and says. Hey, the New York Times is calling and they're doing this thing on Seattle and I think you might have more fun with it than and me. And so that's
0: because the Nirvana Nevermind mind record blown up and now it's like Seattle's a thing and it's a full-blown grunge yeah. it's a thing happening, right? Yeah,
3: Seattle becomes a really interesting place at that time for music people because there are A&R people just swarming the city signing every single band there are like tourists coming in to like go to music venues. Like it was bizarro. So the New York times decides that they're going to do this huge feature on Seattle for the style section. And it's based around that Mark Jacobs, the designer Mark Jacobs. Yeah. Part of what they're going to do. They're going to talk about the fashion stuff, the grunge wear. they're going to talk about Seattle music culture. And They heard that there was a lexicon of grunge. The reason they heard that was because I had already made some fake words for an English newspaper. I sometimes forget about this called The Sky. And they printed a bunch of like shit from that.
2: The
0: lexicon of grunge.
3: Yeah, it was like some other words. I don't even remember what they were. But the Mudhoney dudes were on tour in Europe and they saw it and they were laughing. And so they were using the words in interviews So the New York Times had gotten word that there was a lexicon, and they called me because they wanted to know grunge words to include in this. And you were
0: somehow the authority on this at this moment.
3: Yeah. So I was like, (laughs) sure, not a problem. Totally beats working right now. So... (laughs) They would give me words, and I gave them a grunge translation. So and give it's me just an example.
0: All okay, give me an example. They give you a word, and what's your grunge translation of that word?
3: Okay, so we started out soft because I wanted it to be believable. So they said, "All right, so like, like the big boots that people wear," and I said, "Kickers." That's not that far off, So like the Doc
0: Martin shoes you guys called. Okay. But but, but stuff that you're just making up off the top of your head.
3: Yeah. So I I did a couple believable ones. And then they were like, well, how about like when you get really fucked up? You're out at a show and you're just like hammered. And so I said, um, like, we call a drunk person a big bag of blotation or something like that. And all I can hear is like... Like on a keyboard, I'm like, all right, I guess that one's believable. And then they said, well, like, all right. So at the end of the night, what are you guys like? You're all about to go home. Like, I catch on the flippity flop. They're like, awesome. <laughs> Getting every word down. People are so clever. Yeah. So, and and they printed it verbatim. They never questioned it. I thought at some point the reporter would be like, okay, cut the bullshit. You're just you guys, yeah. here. and And I thought it would end as a joke and they wouldn't run it in the paper. Nope. And then my mom calls me weeks later. Jesus Christ, have you read the paper? I was like, nope. <laughs> you need to go get the New York Times. I'm like, oh, fuck. So I went down, <laughs> got a copy. And sure enough, like the whole lexicon is there.
0: Are you quoted? It says Megan Jasper from Seattle, Washington.
3: Yeah. Oh, I was psyched. God. I was like, oh, yes, I can't believe they did it. I can't believe no one caught it.
0: Yeah, it's such a funny thing, you know, because the, the movie Hype talks about that. You can go on YouTube and there's uh, all kinds of stuff about it to this day. And I, I love looking at this stuff and seeing the 25 year old Megan Jasper <laughs> explaining this stuff it is really funny. So okay, so then you end up coming back to Sub Pop at a certain point. Was that yeah. was it just a brief time you were away and came back?
3: Yeah, I got laid off because the label was just in such tough shape. I got laid off right before Nevermind came out, and I was bummed, but also I totally understood they had to do what they needed to do to survive. It didn't mean any of my friendships were going away like it was all OK. I figured I'll take a year. I'll really love living here and I'll go back east. And during that year, I kind of felt like I was just discovering more about the city. And I was I really, truly fell in love with Seattle during that year. And I didn't want to go back east. I didn't want to go back to school. And I kind of had this epiphany where I was like, I don't have to be a school teacher. I can fucking do this. I was on tour with Dinosaur and My Bloody Valentine, and I was making it work. Like, I had real jobs. I just didn't know they were real jobs. I thought that they were, you know, killing time until I went to graduate school. And So, so, so you I'd,
0: came back to Sub Pop?
3: I actually did music distribution. Susie Tennant, a local Seattleite who everyone here loves and who was doing radio for Geffen and then for Sub Pop. Susie helped me put together a resume I got a job working for Caroline Distribution, and I distributed music in the Northwest to mom-and-pop stores. And then I felt like I was working on the reserve tank. I was like, I want to get closer to the music. And so I called up Jonathan, and I said, I think it's time for me to look for another job. And he said, come back to Sub Pop.
0: You weren't the receptionist anymore when you went back. What job did you go to?
3: Well, he offered me a job doing A&R, but I felt like I wouldn't be the best A&R person. And then he came back to me about a month later and said, would you want to run the marketing department? And I said, yes. (laughs) It was awesome. I had a lot of stuff I still needed to learn, but I loved the crew that was working there. It was a different kind of label than the one I'd left. It was more organized but it was hurting still, but in different ways. It needed a hardcore morale boost. It was going through a transition. And I so was So were psyched. you able
0: to bring not only the expertise and the love for the art, but like some sense of process and organization and, you know, things you learned along the way? Yeah. I mean, you were able, obviously, to take that. Yeah. Into a place that was kind of shambolic and growing and yeah. And then make it like a real help, make it a real thing.
3: I could take my experience in distribution. I knew what marketing support meant because you can't sell records without proper support. And I had total belief that sub pop could become more of itself and kind of come back to that place of feeling like a really special home.
0: At what point did you become more of a leader at Sub Pop? I mean, you're the CEO now, but you weren't right away. I mean, what, what kind was the progression to that?
3: I think maybe I couldn't help myself because even though I was only in charge of marketing and sales, I felt like that whole team needed to be pulled together, meaning the whole staff. And so I would organize staff meetings on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the morning and just pull everyone together and talk about what was going on.
0: Well, where's that natural leadership come from? Because, I mean, again, you weren't being instructed to do it. And when you didn't learn it from a textbook in school, yeah. you had natural instincts around leadership.
3: I think I just need to know that, like, everyone's together and working together and on the same page. I joke that I'm kind of, like, part dog. Like, I like hurting people. <laughs>
1: okay,
0: <laughs> I'm a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so... I can only assume that there's not a lot of women in leadership positions in the music industry, particularly back then, maybe more so now. And all of a sudden, you're kind of in this position and you're running things. What did it feel like being a woman leader in a largely male-dominated industry?
3: Honestly, I tried so hard to not even focus on that. Like I just kept my head down and really just tried to do my job really well. There weren't many women in leadership positions and I totally was aware of the fact that that was unusual. I also felt like I didn't want to totally call attention to it because I didn't want that to be the thing that defined me or my experience. I will tell you that later on, It changed for me. And I feel like sort of the feminist in me was like so many other things in my life. I I was a late bloomer. Like now when women call me or women that I work with need something like I really try as best as I'm able to make sure that they have the support that they need, because this industry needs more women. And we need more women in leadership positions.
0: I'm also curious, like, you know, the punk rock girl, like her parents, like, geez, I don't know what's happening here. And you didn't go on the family tradition of being a teacher or a nun. <laughs> what was it like for them? How did they feel when all of a sudden, you know, their daughter's like doing it? I mean, this is it's like a legit business. It's a big yeah. deal. And she's running it.
3: My mom always got nervous that I was going to be a receptionist forever. And she kind of she didn't want me to get stuck. But when I started getting jobs that were bigger jobs, my parents were so psyched. And my mom's exact words were Jesus Christ, thank God you're doing something different, like from (laughs) teaching. Because, you know, my parents are both, my dad was a pretty creative person, and my mom is a super creative person. And so they both had a lot of pride. And they're proud of my sister, who's a professor. They're proud of both of us.
0: They should be. That's great. <laughs> so I, I think it's super interesting how you can go from like being a fan to kind of being in it in a grassroots and scrappy level to literally being kind of a tastemaker. And like you are now in a position to help the young, you know, Megan Jaspers of today discover new music. What, what does that feel like to you to be in a position where? You can be responsible for that discovery.
3: Pete, that's like the dream come true. Because when you're the kid and you just want to participate and you want to feel like you belong and you, you want to be a part of something, to be able to participate in this way and to help musicians or individuals just find their place in it, it, it is not lost on me. And, and I often in a day remember that desire as a young person like just wanting to have a place where i felt like i was accepted
0: did you feel like an outcast when you were younger totally yeah Yeah.
3: i still do i mean because i think when you feel like that as a kid you never totally shake it you know you always feel a little bit like an outsider and i know i'm not an outsider like i have so many great people in my life but when you're a fucking oddball and you're you're <laughs> labeled an oddball, especially at that age, you I think you're never not an oddball. But, yeah, to help like all those other weirdos like find their place like that's the dream.
0: One of the things that brought us together is, I think, a mutual desire to do good in our community. Yeah. So, as you know, my wife and I started this charitable event to help support Seattle Children's Hospital. And, you know, my way of thinking about doing something that I think would do good, but also something I'd want to be involved with, I said, well, it's going to be cool if we did something around music. And it became clear pretty fast that we're going to have any event related to music in this town that I should tap in to you. Now, I'm not sure we had even met each other at this point. We, we may have met each other through this. And then you ended up signing up to be part of our scrappy little team that has this charitable event, which this year we're celebrating our 10th year raising money for uncompensated care at Seattle Children's Hospital, which we've raised over $20 million in 10 years. And you've been such an instrumental part of that. But I'm curious, where does that come from, this place where you had... I mean, it was not hard to get you on board here.
3: First off, I have to say what you guys have built... It really is so impressive and amazing. And I love being a part of that group, but I am a very mission-driven person. I mean, before Smooch, I was doing benefit shows for like youth organizations and the Vera Project and... I like doing things like that. It makes me feel good. I've been doing board work and volunteer work for more than 30 years. Yeah. So when you guys came to me, if Pete Nordstrom and John Richards say, hey, can you help us with this thing? Like, you don't say no. And then I wish
0: I knew I had that kind of clout. I'd ask for more things, but thank you for (laughs) saying that.
3: But then, like, what you're doing is so admirable and amazing, and you just can't say no. So... I was psyched that you asked. I fucking love being a part of that team. It's amazing.
0: Yeah, it's great. So you know, you know, your role has been helping us curate bands because we have a live event yeah. with live music. And you've been able to help us bring in so many great artists from the sub pop roster and other places. And it's been just fantastic. So I just want to let you know how much I appreciate that and and appreciate getting to know you through all this.
3: I feel the same way. I love working on it. And the cool thing is after 10 years, you know, there are so many managers and artists who know what Smooch is now. So it's different and it's really grown into something significant. And it's so cool to see it happen. And you guys have done a killer job. Like, it's awesome that you do what you do.
0: Well, thanks. It's a a team effort. And I think there's a lot we can all take from that. And it feels good, like particularly these times, to be able to do things for your community. So it's it's particularly in these times of need. Yeah. All right. Hey, Megan, it was really fun talking to you. As always, I really appreciate being your friend. I appreciate you taking the time to be part of the podcast. So thank you.
3: Thank you so much. I feel the same way. And I loved chatting and I feel bad that I didn't even ask you any questions.
0: <laughs> I'm not as interesting as you are. So that's, that's okay. Not true. <laughs> So for this episode's customer experience, I want to introduce you to a good friend of mine and owner of the famous Seattle-based Hello Robin Cookies, which by the way, if you're ever in town, you got to check it out. It's fantastic. Her name is Robin Wheel Martin. She came in to share a few stories about her two teenage boys who hang out at Nordstrom all the time and have built a relationship with one of our best stylists. We're going to follow up with him in a little bit, but first, here's Robin. I'm super happy that you're here, Robin. First of all, I want to tell you I think your handbag's awesome.
2: Oh well.
0: So what is that?
2: That is a Coach handbag that I got downstairs. I saw it on display and I was obsessing over it, <laughs> and then I had to come back and buy it.
0: And that's one of the things that I love about Robin. She's a really good customer too. So right, we, we, we got that going for each other. <laughs> my and whole family. And spends. I think my family's pretty good f- customer of the cookies. I've been. I get sent a lot there as a honey do list thing. I gotta go pick up cookies. Yeah, and I, I appreciate it. And that's
2: really how I got to know you guys.
0: Right. So look, Robin's got a really interesting story, and you know, we're friends, and she kind of fills me in on her Nordstrom experience, which I always appreciate. But I, I want to start if you can just tell us a little bit about kind of your experience and background about being a Nordstrom customer.
2: I have been a Nordstrom customer since the '70s in Bellevue Square. I mean, I can remember it vividly. I can remember the smell of it. I can remember going there and getting shoes and it, and getting a Nordy, uh, like a stuffed animal, yeah. which was magical. <laughs>
0: it's not really an animal. I don't know what it is, but it's yeah, it's a Nordy stuffed thing. Yeah, a SME or something. I, I think wonder it's called. where called. I don't is. know what it is. <laughs> oh, there we, are. we still give those away. Oh. <laughs> <Aww. laughs> so okay, recently you've given me feedback about customer stuff, and you had that one letter that you wrote, to store manager. Can yeah. you talk about
2: that? So during COVID, my kids were not in. school. School, you know, like most of the nation. And they were bored. They just, they didn't have anything to do. There were no extracurriculars. And so anytime that they were sitting around and they were bored, they would look at each other, my two boys who are now 12 and 16, and they would be like, let's go walk down to Nordstrom.
0: And to put that in context, that's a couple miles. I mean, that's not just a block away.
2: Oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> and I would say they probably did it three times a week. Like it was their happy place. It was it gave them something to do. I don't even know what they would do. (laughs) I really don't know. But we were always like, Yes, that's a good idea. Go.
0: So okay, so tell me about the story you wrote a letter to the store manager here. So
2: it was on one trip when they were down in the basement in the men's section and somebody was We like
0: to call that lower level one, not the basement. Oh right.
2: Right. (laughs) Metro level? Metro level.
0: Yes. (laughs) Thank
2: you.
0: To be clear. (laughs)
2: Um, so they were down in the metro level one, and somebody was going up the escalator and they dropped a $20 bill. This is a customer, this is somebody that they didn't know. And my kids somehow saw this happen, and so they started yelling, like, ma'am, ma'am, you dropped twenty dollars, you dropped your money, and that you know, probably <laughs> causing a commotion.
0: That was a good Samaritan deed for them to do. That's nice.
2: Yeah, and I'm glad they did that. But um, and so the person was like, Oh my goodness, you know, thank you so much, and then picked up the money. Put Put it in their pocket and then continued up the escalator and disappeared. Well, the staff downstairs saw this happen and went over to my boys and gave them each a cellophane gift bag filled with... Cologne samples and lotions and potions and I don't even know what was in this bag, with big ribbons on it, like very festive looking. And said, you know, you guys, that was so nice of you, and thank you for doing that. And
0: so they just took it upon themselves to the staff do yeah. something nice for your Yes, kids. that's nice. And so
2: when my boys came home, it was like it was Halloween. You know how at Halloween you dump all your candy out on the bed and you look at it and you sort it. So here they are with these two bags, going through them, smelling everything. Of like
0: samples of fragrances and stuff. Yes.
2: Yeah, extremely fragrant samples. I think my (laughs) youngest one put, like, all of them on at once. Oh, awesome. Uh, Yeah, it was really nice. Um, And so they were delighted. And I think that when George walked into the door, he said, this is the best day ever. You're never going to believe what happened. And so I wrote a letter to the store manager. And I just wrote her, like, a really quick email about how every customer matters. And it's so evident that the staff was so nice to them they And they were starting to like develop kind of rapports with other staff people here,
0: you know, and to be clear, it's not because they're walking around saying, "Hey, my mom's friends with Pete and Brandy no, Nordstrom." I mean no, it's like, no no, they, there's none of that connection Nobody made. I mean, knows so people that. are listening like, well, I'm sure that happens because they're friends with Pete Nordstrom. no, and then we had this <laughs> this deal that happened with your sons come back in the store. so so talk a little bit about that. That your son, oh, my God! Okay, what, so at least Milo, this- one of your sons, had in the store.
2: So my two boys, again, walked down to Nordstrom. They were downstairs. They were looking at a new line that you guys had, Essentials. It was Fear of
0: God Essentials.
2: Fear of God Essentials. And they were super excited for it to come out. Milo, my son, fell in love with um, a pair of cream-colored sweatpants and a T-shirt he tried on the outfit, and then he borrowed my older son's phone to call my husband, their dad, and say, can I please buy this outfit? And my husband said, no, I'm not going to buy you this outfit. You don't need this outfit. And, you know, our plan is that we will buy the kids essentials, but he didn't need cream colors. this, is, a, this is an
0: elective, not, yes. not a necessary This wasn't set. like
2: he needed sweats for PE class. Right, You know, right. this is – he just wanted to look so cool. So this is on
0: him, his money, his thing.
2: Yeah. So they start taking pictures. They're texting us pictures of Milo in this cool outfit, and we're just like, we're not buying this outfit. And by the time they had hung up the phone with my husband, who was the Mister No Fun, um, <laughs> the salesperson Keaton had bought the outfit for my son.
0: He bought the outfit.
2: He bought on his own dime. the outfit. He took his credit card out of his wallet and bought my son the outfit.
0: That is amazing, man. That's just to be clear that is not in the training manual about selling people. Like, McKeat's an amazing guy. I mean, I'm not totally shocked that that happened, but tell me about just the impression that made on your kids and, and you guys.
2: I mean, my kids were already obsessed with him because he has. Super cool style. And so they always want to run things by him. They go downstairs to see if Keaton's working. And obviously, like, we're going to be customers of his for life. You know, we're not going to forget this. We're not (laughs) going to forget his kindness.
0: So Milo comes home with a bag, and you're like, what's in the bag?
2: Milo came home, and then again, this is the best day ever.
0: (laughs) You know what I I really like about this story? I mean, first of all, our salespeople work on commission. Right. And, you know, they're down there trying to make a buck. And it's not easy. But in this case, the guy Keaton's successful because he's not transactional in in Mm -hmm. nature. He's more relationship-oriented. And that that had made an impact on your kids, that's really good stuff.
2: They always leave here feeling better. Oh, and one more thing happened, actually. This is funny. I don't even know if you know this. George, the 16-year-old, started designing um, and painting Air Force Ones, Nikes, Do you know the story? Okay.
0: I don't think so. Okay.
2: So he went downstairs, had a picture of what he was going to make. He was going to paint like a pair of Air Force Ones, like a salmon colored, and then make the Nike swoosh into a palm tree. And he had big plans. And so he showed it to Keaton, just like his mock-up. So are they
0: new Air Force Ones or are they vintage ones? Brand new Air Force Ones. Okay. Yeah.
2: And so Keaton saw what he was going to do. And this wasn't, this was just like kind of a rough drawing that he had done on his iPhone. And Keaton said, oh, I really want a pair of those. And then my son was like, really? And he said, yeah. And he told him his shoe size and ordered a pair of shoes. So Keaton was
0: George's first customer in this enterprise. Yes.
2: George was thrilled. He was so excited. He was like, oh, my gosh, like someone believes in me. And he was empowered. And so he... Bought a pair of Air Force Ones. I think they were ninety dollars. Bought all this paint and then spread out across our dining room table for like a week and just worked nonstop on painting these shoes. Um, and then he <laughs> did, had to did take they it- mess
0: any up and like had to throw a shoe away? That'd <laughs> oh be an ex- that'd be an ex- that's a high know. risk <gasps> endeavor for them to be painting on stuff. It is that they're having to buy with their own money. I know,
2: and- but he. Totally executed on it. And then he took it one step further and he bought – because it was he did this palm tree. He bought palm tree tissue paper to put inside the shoebox, painted the shoebox like this salmon color. He spray painted it and then came down and gave it to Keaton. And Keaton said, OK, how much do I owe you? And George said – and I love this. He said $90, which was what the shoes cost him. Right. Um, because George was thinking like You gotta you know, give him a little
0: business lesson. He's gotta put some margin well, into Keaton
2: that. Keaton did. <laughs> Keaton gave him a little business lesson. Okay, Keaton gave him, I think, two hundred and fifty dollars. Oh, geez. And said, I know that you put how many hours did you put into this and you have to factor in, you know, your supplies. You know, you gotta make money on this. And so he sold That's him awesome. this great pair of shoes
0: look at Robin it's great I, I really appreciate um, you sharing your story with me today and again if you want to know more about Hello Robin Cookies what, what's the your, your URL for that Hello
2: HelloRobinCookies.com so, there
0: you go and I'm telling you you won't regret it the cookies are fantastic aww and, um,
2: well thank you very much it's really nice to be here this is fun alright thanks Robin bye
0: So, we're walking now on uh, the metro level, which is where we have the men's department, and we're gonna go talk to Keaton. And Keaton's one of our top personal stylists, and he hangs out down here kind of in the men's designer area. He's the guy that helped Robin's sons and uh, has kind of created that really awesome personal connection. Yeah,
1: no problem. You
0: Thank you. All right, Keaton, you ready? Yeah, do you wanna Try go to... back here or is this? No, I'll go wherever you want. Here, we'll sit down. Cool. Keaton, I'm not going to try to say your last name. Do you want me to try to butcher your last no, name? No, you're fine.
1: Tiding Fong.
0: Tiding Fong? Yeah. <laughs> so, Keaton, I want to start just by getting your version of the story about how you helped yeah. Robin Wheel's kids, Milo and George.
1: Yeah, so they've been coming to the store for a while now, a couple of years, especially during COVID, not a lot to do in Seattle. And it's just exciting to see really anybody in, in here, even if they're just hanging out <laughs> walking
0: through. Yeah, there were some lean times there, not many people coming through.
1: Yeah, you know, we had to get creative and just seeing a smiling face or, you know, two young men who were very respectful and had a passion for retail and fashion in general was cool. So they came around uh, quite a bit last year and they're both really cool style, their own unique style. And I had always come in for the drops and things like that. So uh, Fear of God specifically is one of our biggest ones. You know, that's how I ended up. Really solidifying my friendship with Milo and George. So what happened? Uh, They came in on a day of a drop, and we luckily actually had a size extra small left um, in the little sweatsuit, so it was like a cream-matching sweatsuit, so Milo really wanted it. Milo pops into the fitting room, tries it on, walks out, and you can kind of see his face. He's like, this is it. Like, I got to have it. And, you know, George is his hype man, and George is the nicest kid I've ever met. So, George, <laughs> George is, so it's like, you know,
0: again, Milo's 12, but George is yeah, 16. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: So, okay. you know, and George is like, Milo, that looks so good on you. You have this shoe that'll go with it, and this shoe that'll go with it. You have to do it. You have to do it. To do it. And Milo, being the responsible young man he is, you know, realizes he goes, okay, well, I have enough for the pan. So he's like, I'm going to do the pan. Knowingly, he, he realized if he walked away, you know, it's kind of the end of it. Someone else is going to buy that piece. Mm-hmm in the next 10 minutes. So he went into the fitting room to change and I had my coworker just ring it up. He came out of the fitting room, I handed him the bag and he looks inside, he said, oh, I, I can only get one, I can only get one. I go, no, you're gonna get both, you have both. Save your money for something else. I just appreciate you guys coming in here Always being kind, just do something nice for you so other. you
0: bought him the pants or the I bought top. him the full
1: I bought him the full outfit you bought him yeah. the outfit yeah just, you know yeah. <laughs>
0: you know I, we, we didn't teach that in training no, no no that's,
1: that's, I, I actually think it might have been something you guys said you't do have <laughs> to do, but uh, <laughs> I just thought you know i I believe in doing nice things for people, and just in the little bit of interaction i've had with those two, I know that they're good kids, and I know they do good things for each other, so it just was my way of kind of a doing something nice for someone else.
0: So. That's amazing, because, you know, again, that yeah, was you. not part of any kind of scripted playbook no. of how we work here. You know, what we try to do for people like yourself is give you a lot of latitude to be exactly. you. So, yes. I, like, how did that make you feel? That First of all, that you've been given that kind of latitude and that you're able to do something nice for somebody else like that.
1: Yeah, no, that's kind of the reason I think I've been able to be successful, and I've been here. I'm coming up on 10 years with all Nordstrom. Right. Yep, so that's a Thank you. And I think the big thing for me is that freedom to take care of our customers or do things on our own terms that has really been like pretty special to me and I was raised in a way that you know you do something nice for somebody and it's going to come back around. I had no idea that his mom shops at Nordstrom or his oh, you so know, didn't know who his mom was No, there. no, I had no idea. I didn't realize it until uh, Milo brought in a box of the best cookies I've ever had. <laughs> Shout out hello Robin. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's my uh you know he's brought them by a couple times since then and You know, they're just the sweetest family, and it's kind of cool to see it come full circle. And even before that, I had um, actually—George had uh, told me he wanted to do this like uh, his own little Nike, his, like, basically, like, his custom Nike. We heard about that. Yeah. So so
0: talk about that. So George, you know, obviously is really into all this fashion stuff to the extent that he's trying to create his own thing.
1: Yeah, so he just was randomly like, do you carry white Air Force Ones? I said, no, uh, that's, like, a really tough shoe to find right now. I can see if I can order it. He's like, I'll pop over to Nike. He's like, I'm going to do a custom. I was like, oh, that sounds cool. What are you doing? And he pulls up a little mock-up on his phone, and it's a painted Air Force One where he had removed the swoosh and put a palm tree. And I have this weird affinity for palm trees, and I said, I got to have that. And he's like,
0: oh, really? Really? So he was, so he you were customer number one.
1: I was customer. I owned the first pair of Air <laughs> Force Georges. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I have that claim to fame. And uh, what's really cool is I've actually, you know, I, I posted it on my Instagram, and I had a couple guys who... Uh, a couple of ball players from around the league, NFL dudes, who text me and am like, "What are those? Where can I get those?" So we're no talking, kidding, yeah. So we're working on trying to get a couple pairs out there. To uh, got a guy in Las Vegas with the Raiders who we're working on getting him a pair right now. So
0: so George is all of a sudden got a little. I know I was entrepreneurial. Yeah. I was like, Saturday I don't want to put too
1: much on his plate. I know he's uh, <laughs> he's in high school right now, and that he was you know doing his own thing, his job, and everything. So, but you know, I just I, I love the passion that he has for fashion, and I like like you said, the entrepreneurial spirit. So I. You know, anything I can do to kind of support people who, you know, I care about and think highly of, I, I'll do that. So I tell people all the time, what I'm doing, sometimes it doesn't feel like, you know, I'm going to change the world selling clothing. But at the same time, you can make some really cool connections and impact people in a very special, very different way. So, you you know, you talk about George and Milo, and that's yeah. just like something, you know, I that's one of my favorite things I've done at Nordstrom is just, you know, meeting them. So creating connections is that just goes so far in this business for sure that's
0: great keaton thanks so much for sharing some of your insights on what's makes you tick what's make you successful i just want to tell you i really appreciate the the work you do you, you do a great job and I yeah. love it. yeah yeah so thank you yeah
1: i appreciate the conversation and like i said uh it doesn't uh, go unrealized that i am very lucky to work at a place like this and be connected to the people i am so thank you and i yeah, appreciate it
0: Well, that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. If you want to hear more inspiring stories, the easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Norty Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to Nordstrom.com slash NordyPodcast where you can listen to episodes, view upcoming guests, and learn about how you can get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you received great service or even bad service, or maybe that time when the anniversary sale came along and you completely overspent your budget and you put yourself in a credit predicament, we want to hear about that too. So send us an email to NordyPodcast at Nordstrom.com You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you might just hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206- 594-0526. 594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the Nordy Pod. And most importantly, be sure to tune in next time to hear my conversation with a literal and metaphorical mountain climber, the founder and CEO of Viore Clothing, Joe Kudla.
1: Viore was not an overnight success. If you were to interview my wife and ask her about those early days, she would tell you, I was riddled with doubt. I didn't know it was going to work. Like we were running out of money. I didn't know if we could go out and get more. And so it was not an easy process. Entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart.
0: Join us for this lesson in endurance for the aspiring entrepreneur. Next time on The Naughty Pod.